Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 29 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne. Translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 29 Thalada, Thalada when I came to myself I was stretched in half-darkness, covered with thick coats and blankets. My uncle was watching over me, to discover the least sign of life. At my first sigh he took my hand. When I opened my eyes he uttered a cry of joy. "'He lives! He lives!' he cried. "'Yes, I am still alive,' I answered feebly. "'My dear nephew!' said my uncle, pressing me to his breast, "'You are saved!' I was deeply touched with the tenderness of his manner as he uttered these words, and still more with the care with which he watched over me. But such trials were wanted to bring out the professor's tenderer qualities. At this moment Hans came, he saw my hand in my uncle's, and I may safely say that there was joy in his countenance. "'Godag!' said he. "'How do you do, Hans? How are you? And now, uncle, tell me where we are at the present moment.' "'Tomorrow, Axel, tomorrow. Now you are too faint and weak. I have bandaged your head with compresses which must not be disturbed. Sleep now, and tomorrow I will tell you all.' "'But do tell me what time it is, and what day.' "'It is Sunday, the 8th of August, and it is ten at night.' You must ask me no more questions until the tenth." In truth I was very weak, and my eyes involuntarily closed. I wanted a good night's rest, and I therefore went off to sleep, with the knowledge that I had been four long days alone in the heart of the earth. Next morning, on awakening, I looked round me. My couch, made up of all our travelling gear, was in a charming grotto, adorned with splendid stalactites and the soil of which was a fine sand. It was half-light. There was no torch, no lamp, yet certain mysterious glimpses of light came from without through a narrow opening in the grotto. I heard, too, a vague and indistinct noise, something like the murmuring of waves breaking upon a shingly shore, and at times I seemed to hear the whistling of wind. I wondered whether I was awake, whether I was dreaming whether my brain, crazed by my fall, was not affected by imaginary noises. Yet neither eyes nor ears could be so utterly deceived. It is a ray of daylight, I thought, sliding in through this cleft in the rock. That is, indeed, the murmuring of waves. That is the rustling noise of wind. Am I quite mistaken, or have we returned to the surface of the earth? Has my uncle given up the expedition? or is it happily terminated?" I was asking myself these unanswerable questions when the professor entered. "'Good morning, Axel,' he cried cheerily. "'I feel sure you are better.' "'Yes, I am indeed,' said I, sitting up on my couch. "'You can hardly fail to be better, for you have slept quietly. 
Hans and I watched you by turns, and we have noticed you were evidently recovering. Indeed, I do feel a great deal better, and I will give you a proof of that presently if you will let me have my breakfast. You shall eat, lad. The fever has left you. Hans rubbed your wounds with some ointment or other of which the Icelanders keep the secret, and they have healed marvellously. Our hunter is a splendid fellow." Whilst he went on talking, my uncle prepared a few provisions, which I devoured eagerly, notwithstanding his advice to the contrary. All the while I was overwhelming him with questions which he answered readily. I then learnt that my providential fall had brought me exactly to the extremity of an almost perpendicular shaft and as I had landed in the midst of an accompanying torrent of stones, the least of which would have been enough to crush me, the conclusion was that a loose portion of the rock had come down with me. This frightful conveyance had thus carried me into the arms of my uncle, where I fell bruised, bleeding, and insensible. "'Truly, it is wonderful that you have not been killed a hundred times over. But for the love of God, don't let us ever separate again, or we may never see each other more.' not separate. Is the journey not over, then?" I opened a pair of astonished eyes, which immediately called for the question. "'What is the matter, Axel?' "'I have a question to ask you. You say that I am safe and sound?' "'No doubt you are.' "'And all my limbs unbroken?' "'Certainly.' "'And my head?' "'Your head, except for a few bruises, is all right, and it is on your shoulders where it ought to be. Well, I am afraid my brain is affected. Your mind affected? Yes, I fear so. Are we again on the surface of the globe? No, certainly not. Then I must be mad, for don't I see the light of day, and don't I hear the wind blowing, and the sea breaking on the shore? Ah, is that all? Do tell me all about it. I can't explain the inexplicable but you will soon see and understand that geology has not yet learnt all it has to learn." "'Then let us go,' I answered quickly. "'No, Axel, the open air might be bad for you.' "'Open air?' "'Yes, the wind is rather strong. You must not expose yourself.' "'But I assure you I am perfectly well. A little patience, my nephew. A relapse might get us into trouble, and we have no time to lose for the voyage may be a long one." The voyage. Yes, rest to-day, and to-morrow we will set sail. Set sail? And I almost leaped up. What did it all mean? Had we a river, a lake, a sea to depend upon? Was there a ship at our disposal in some underground harbour? My curiosity was highly excited. My uncle vainly tried to restrain me. When he saw that my impatience was doing me harm, he yielded. I dressed in haste. For greater safety I wrapped myself in a blanket and came out of the grotto. End of chapter 29。Chapter 30 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 30 A New Mare Internum At first I could hardly see anything. 
my eyes, unaccustomed to the light, quickly closed. When I was able to reopen them, I stood more stupefied even than surprised. "'The sea!' I cried. "'Yes,' my uncle replied. "'The Liedenbrock Sea. And I don't suppose any other discoverer will ever dispute my claim to name it after myself as its first discoverer.' A vast sheet of water, the commencement of a lake or an ocean, spread far away beyond the range of the eye, reminding me forcibly of that open sea which drew from Xenophon's ten thousand Greeks, after their long retreat, the simultaneous cry, Thalata! Thalata! The sea! The sea! The deeply indented shore was lined with a breadth of fine shining sand, softly lapped by the waves, and strewn with the small shells which had been inhabited by the first of created beings. The waves broke on this shore with a hollow echoing murmur peculiar to vast enclosed spaces. A light foam flew over the waves before the breath of a moderate breeze, and some of the spray fell upon my face. On this slightly inclining shore, about a hundred fathoms from the limit of the waves, came down the foot of a huge wall of vast cliffs, which rose majestically to an enormous height. Some of these, dividing the beach with their sharp spurs, formed capes and promontories, worn away by the ceaseless action of the surf. Farther on the eye discerned their massive outline sharply defined against the hazy distant horizon. It was quite an ocean, with the irregular shores of earth, but desert and frightfully wild in appearance. If my eyes were able to range afar over this great sea, it was because a peculiar light brought to view every detail of it. It was not the light of the sun, with his dazzling shafts of brightness and the splendor of his rays, nor was it the pale and uncertain shimmer of the moonbeams, the dim reflection of a nobler body of light. No, the illuminating power of this light, its trembling diffusiveness, its bright clear whiteness and its low temperature, showed that it must be of electric origin. It was like an aurora borealis, a continuous cosmical phenomenon, filling a cavern of sufficient extent to contain an ocean. The vault that spanned the space above, the sky, if it could be called so, seemed composed of vast plains of cloud, shifting and variable vapors, which by their condensation must at certain times fall in torrents of rain. I should have thought that, under so powerful a pressure of the atmosphere, there could be no evaporation. And yet, under a law unknown to me, there were broad tracks of vapor suspended in the air. But then the weather was fine. The play of the electric light produced singular effects upon the upper strata of cloud. Deep shadows reposed upon their lower wreaths, and often, between two separated fields of cloud, there glided down a ray of unspeakable luster. But it was not solar light, and there was no heat. The general effect was sad, supremely melancholy. Instead of the shining firmament, spangled with its innumerable stars, shining singly or in clusters, I felt that all these subdued and shaded lights were ribbed in by vast walls of granite, which seemed to overpower me with their weight, and that all this space, great as it was, would not be enough for the march of the humblest of satellites. Then I remembered the theory of an English captain, who likened the earth to a vast hollow sphere, in the interior of which the air became luminous because of the vast pressure that weighed upon it, while two stars, Pluto and Proserpine, 
rolled within upon the circuit of their mysterious orbits. We were in reality shut up inside an immeasurable excavation. Its width could not be estimated, since the shore ran widening as far as the eye could reach, nor could its length, for the dim horizon bounded the new. As for its height, it must have been several leagues. Where this vault rested upon its granite base no eye could tell, but there was a cloud hanging far above, the height of which we estimated at twelve thousand feet, a greater height than that of any terrestrial vapor, and no doubt due to the great density of the air. The word cavern does not convey any idea of this immense space. Words of human tongue are inadequate to describe the discoveries of him who ventures into the deep abysses of earth. Besides, I could not tell upon what geological theory to account for the existence of such an excavation. Had the cooling of the globe produced it? I knew of celebrated caverns from the descriptions of travellers, but had never heard of any of such dimensions as this. If the Grotto of Wahara in Colombia, visited by Humboldt, had not given up the whole of the secret of its depth to the philosopher, who investigated it to the depth of twenty-five hundred feet, it probably did not extend much farther. The immense mammoth cave in Kentucky is of gigantic proportions, since its vaulted roof rises five hundred feet above the level of an unfathomable lake, and travellers have explored its ramifications to the extent of forty miles. But what were these cavities compared to that in which I stood with wonder and admiration, with its sky of luminous vapours, its bursts of electric light, and a vast sea filling its bed? My imagination fell powerless before such immensity. I gazed upon these wonders in silence. Words failed me to express my feelings. I felt as if I was in some distant planet Uranus or Neptune and in the presence of phenomena of which my terrestrial experience gave me no cognizance. For such novel sensations new words were wanted, and my imagination failed to supply them. I gazed, I thought, I admired, with a stupefaction mingled with a certain amount of fear. The unforeseen nature of this spectacle brought back the color to my cheeks. I was under a new course of treatment with the aid of astonishment and my convalescence was promoted by this novel system of therapeutics. Besides, the dense and breezy air invigorated me, supplying more oxygen to my lungs. It will be easily conceived that after an imprisonment of forty-seven days in a narrow gallery it was the height of physical enjoyment to breathe a moist air impregnated with saline particles. I was delighted to leave my dark grotto. My uncle, already familiar with these wonders, had ceased to feel surprised. "'You feel strong enough to walk a little way now?' he asked. "'Yes, certainly, and nothing could be more delightful.' "'Well, take my arm, Axel, and let us follow the windings of the shore.' I eagerly accepted, and we began to coast along this new sea. On the left huge pyramids of rock, piled one upon another, produced a prodigious titanic effect. Down their sides flowed numberless waterfalls, which went on their way in brawling but pellucid streams. A few light vapors, leaping from rock to rock, denoted the place of hot springs, and streams flowed softly down to the common basin, gliding down the gentle slopes with a soft murmur. Against these streams I recognized our faithful traveling companion, the Hansbach, coming to lose its little volume quietly in the mighty sea, 
just as if it had done nothing else since the beginning of the world. "'We shall see it no more,' I said with a sigh. "'What matters?' replied the philosopher, "'whether this or another serves to guide us.' I thought him rather ungrateful. But at that moment my attention was drawn to an unexpected sight. At a distance of five hundred paces, at the turn of a high promontory, appeared a high, tufted, dense forest. It was composed of trees of moderate height, formed like umbrellas, with exact geometrical outlines. The currents of wind seemed to have had no effect upon their shape, and in the midst of the windy blast they stood unmoved and firm, just like a clump of petrified cedars. I hastened forward. I could not give any name to these singular creations. Were they some of the two hundred thousand species of vegetables known hitherto, and did they claim a place of their own in the lacustrine flora? No. When we arrived under their shade, my surprise turned into admiration. There stood before me productions of earth, but of gigantic stature, which my uncle immediately named. "'It is only a forest of mushrooms,' said he. And he was right. Imagine the large development attained by these plants, which prefer a warm, moist climate. I knew that the Lycopodon giganteum attains, according to Bulliard, a circumference of eight or nine feet. But here were pale mushrooms, thirty to forty feet high, and crowned with a cap of equal diameter. There they stood in thousands. No light could penetrate between their huge cones, and complete darkness reigned beneath these giants. They formed settlements of domes placed in close array like the round, thatched roofs of a central African city. Yet I wanted to penetrate farther underneath, though a chill fell upon me as soon as I came under those cellular vaults. For half an hour we wandered from side to side in the damp shades, and it was a comfortable and pleasant change to arrive once more upon the seashore. But the subterranean vegetation was not confined to these fungi. Farther on rose groups of tall trees of colorless foliage and easy to recognize. They were lowly shrubs of earth, here attaining gigantic size. Like a podiums, a hundred feet high, the huge sigillaria, found in our coal-mines. Tree-ferns as tall as our fir trees in northern latitudes, lepidodendra with cylindrical forked stems, terminated by long leaves and bristling with rough hairs like those of the cactus. "'Wonderful! Magnificent! Splendid!' cried my uncle. "'Here is the entire flora of the second period of the world, the transition period. These humble garden plants with us were tall trees in the early ages. Look, Axel, and admire it all. Never had a botanist such a feast as this.' "'You are right, my uncle. Providence seems to have preserved in this immense conservatory the antediluvian plants which the wisdom of philosophers has so sagaciously put together again. It is a conservatory, Axel, but is it not also a menagerie? Surely not a menagerie. Yes, no doubt of it. Look at that dust under your feet. See the bones scattered on the ground. So there are, I cried, bones of extinct animals. I had rushed upon these remains, formed of indestructible phosphates of lime, and without hesitation I named these monstrous bones, which lay scattered about like decayed trunks of trees. "'Here is the lower jaw of a mastodon,' I said. "'These are the molar teeth of the dinotherium. 
this femur must have belonged to the greatest of those beasts, the Megatherium. It certainly is a menagerie, for these remains were not brought here by a deluge. The animals to which they belonged roamed on the shores of this subterranean sea, under the shade of those arborescent trees. Here are entire skeletons. And yet I cannot understand the appearance of these quadrupeds in a granite cavern. Why? Because animal life existed upon earth only in the secondary period, when a sediment of soil had been deposited by the rivers, and taken the place of the incandescent rocks of the primitive period. Well, Axel, there is a very simple answer to your objection that this soil is alluvial. What? At such a depth below the surface of the earth? No doubt. And there is a geological explanation of the fact. At a certain period the earth consisted only of an elastic crust or bark, alternately acted on by forces from above or below, according to the laws of attraction and gravitation. Probably there were subsidences of the outer crust when a portion of the sedimentary deposits was carried down sudden openings. That may be, I replied. But if there have been creatures now extinct in these underground regions, why may not some of those monsters be now roaming through these gloomy forests, or hidden behind the steep crags?" And as this unpleasant notion got hold of me, I surveyed with anxious scrutiny the open spaces before me, but no living creature appeared upon the barren strand. I felt rather tired, and went to sit down at the end of a promontory, at the foot of which the waves came and beat themselves into spray. Thence my eye could sweep every part of the bay. Within its extremity a little harbour was formed between the pyramidal cliffs, where the still water slept untouched by the boisterous winds. A brig and two or three schooners might have moored within it in safety. I almost fancied I should presently see some ship issue from it, full sail and take to the open sea under the southern breeze. But this illusion lasted a very short time. We were the only living creatures in this subterranean world. When the wind lulled, a deeper silence than that of the deserts fell upon the arid, naked rocks and weighed upon the surface of the ocean. I then desired to pierce the distant haze, and to rend asunder the mysterious curtain that hung across the horizon. Anxious queries arose to my lips. Where did that sea terminate? Where did it lead to? Should we ever know anything about its opposite shores? My uncle made no doubt about it at all. I both desired and feared. After spending an hour in the contemplation of this marvellous spectacle, we returned to the shore to regain the grotto, and I fell asleep in the midst of the strangest thoughts. End of chapter 30「Of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 31 Preparations for a Voyage of Discovery The next morning I awoke feeling perfectly well. I thought a bathe would do me good, and I went to plunge for a few minutes into the waters of this Mediterranean Sea for assuredly it better deserved this name than any other sea. I came back to breakfast with a good appetite. Hans was a good caterer for our little household. He had water and fire at his disposal, so that he was able to vary our bill of fare now and then. 
for dessert he gave us a few cups of coffee, and never was coffee so delicious. "'Now,' said my uncle, "'now is the time for high tide, and we must not lose the opportunity to study this phenomenon.' "'What, the tide?' I cried. "'Can the influence of the sun and moon be felt down here?' "'Why not? Are not all bodies subject throughout their mass to the power of universal attraction? This mass of water cannot escape the general law. And in spite of the heavy atmospheric pressure on the surface, you will see it rise like the Atlantic itself.' At the same moment we reached the sand on the shore, and the waves were by slow degrees encroaching on the shore. "'Here is the tide rising,' I cried. "'Yes, Axel, and judging by these ridges of foam, you may observe that the sea will rise about twelve feet.' "'This is wonderful,' I said. "'No, it is quite natural.' "'You may say so, uncle, but to me it is most extraordinary, and I can hardly believe my eyes. Who would ever have imagined, under this terrestrial crust, an ocean with ebbing and flowing tides, with winds and storms?' "'Well,' replied my uncle, "'is there any scientific reason against it?' No, I see none, as soon as the theory of central heat is given up. So then, thus far, he answered, the theory of Sir Humphrey Davy is confirmed. Evidently it is, and now there is no reason why there should not be seas and continents in the interior of the earth. No doubt, said my uncle, and inhabited too. To be sure, said I, and why should not these waters yield to us fishes of unknown species? At any rate, he replied, we have not seen any yet. Well, let us make some lines, and see if the bait will draw here as it does in sublunary regions. We will try, Axel, for we must penetrate all secrets of these newly discovered regions. But where are we, uncle? For I have not yet asked you that question, and your instruments must be able to furnish the answer. Horizontally, three hundred and fifty leagues from Iceland. So much as that? I am sure of not being a mile out of my reckoning. And does the compass still show southeast? Yes, with a westerly deviation of nineteen degrees forty-five minutes, just as above ground. As for its dip, a curious fact is coming to light, which I have observed carefully. That the needle, instead of dipping towards the pole, as in the northern hemisphere, on the contrary, rises from it. Would you then conclude, I said, that the magnetic pole is somewhere between the surface of the globe and the point where we are? Exactly so, and it is likely enough that if we were to reach the spot beneath the polar regions, about that seventy-first degree where Sir James Ross has discovered the magnetic pole to be situated, we should see the needle point straight up. Therefore, that mysterious centre of attraction is at no great depth. I remarked, It is so and here is a fact which science has scarcely suspected. Science, my lad, has been built upon many errors. But they are errors which it is good to fall into, for they led to the truth. What depth have we now reached? We are thirty-five leagues below the surface. So, I said, examining the map, the highlands of Scotland are over our heads, and the Grampians are raising their rugged summits above us. Yes answered the professor, laughing. It is rather a heavy weight to bear, but a solid arch spans over our heads. 
the great architect has built it of the best materials. And never could man have given it so wide a stretch. What are the finest arches of bridges and the arcades of cathedrals compared with this far-reaching vault, with a radius of three leagues, beneath which a wide and tempest-tossed ocean may flow at its ease? Oh, I am not afraid that it will fall down upon my head. But now what are your plans? Are you not thinking of returning to the surface now? Return? No, indeed. We will continue our journey, everything having gone on well so far. But how are we to get down below this liquid surface? Oh, I am not going to dive head foremost. But if all oceans are properly speaking but lakes, since they are encompassed by land, of course this internal sea will be surrounded by a coast of granite, and on the opposite shores we shall find fresh passages opening. How long do you suppose the sea to be? Thirty or forty leagues, so that we have no time to lose, and we shall set sail to-morrow. I looked about for a ship. Set sail, shall we? But I should like to see my boat first. It will not be a boat at all, but a good, well-made raft. Why, I said, a raft would be just as hard to make as a boat, and I don't see— I know you don't see, but you might hear if you would listen. Don't you hear the hammer at work? Hans is already busy at it. What, has he already felled the trees? Oh, the trees were already down. Come, and you will see for yourself. After half an hour's walking, on the other side of the promontory which formed the little natural harbour, I perceived Hans at work. In a few more steps I was at his side. To my great surprise a half-finished raft was already lying on the sand, made of a peculiar kind of wood, and a great number of planks, straight and bent, and of frames, were covering the ground enough almost for a little fleet. "'Uncle, what wood is this?' I cried. "'It is fir, pine or birch, or other northern conifery, mineralized by the action of the sea. It is called Surtebrand, a variety of brown coal or lignite found chiefly in Iceland.' "'But surely, then, like other fossil wood, it must be as hard as stone and cannot float. Sometimes that may happen. Some of these woods become true anthracites, but others, such as this, have only gone through the first stage of fossil transformation. Just look," added my uncle, throwing into the sea one of those precious waifs. The bit of wood, after disappearing, returned to the surface and oscillated to and fro with the waves. "'Are you convinced?' said my uncle. I am quite convinced, although it is incredible. By next evening, thanks to the industry and skill of our guide, the raft was made. It was ten feet by five. The planks of Surtebrand, braced strongly together with cords, presented an even surface. And when launched, this improvised vessel floated easily upon the waves of the Liedenbrock Sea. End of chapter 31《Chapter Thirty Two of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirty Two Wonders of the Deep. On the thirteenth of August, we awoke early. We were now to begin to adopt a mode of travelling both more expeditious and less fatiguing than hitherto. 
A mast was made of two poles spliced together, a yard was made of a third, a blanket barred from our coverings made a tolerable sail. There was no want of cordage for the rigging, and everything was well and firmly made. The provisions, the baggage, the instruments, the guns, and a good quantity of fresh water from the rocks around all found their proper places on board. And at six the professor gave the signal to embark. Hans had fitted up a rudder to steer his vessel. He took the tiller and unmoored. The sail was set and we were soon afloat. At the moment of leaving the harbour, my uncle, who was tenaciously fond of naming his new discoveries, wanted to give it a name, and proposed mine amongst others. "'But I have a better to propose,' I said. "'Grauben. Let it be called Port Grauben. It will look very well upon the map.' "'Port Grauben let it be, then.' And so the cherished remembrance of my Verlin days became associated with our adventurous expedition. The wind was from the northwest. We went with it at a high rate of speed. The dense atmosphere acted with great force and impelled us swiftly on. In an hour my uncle had been able to estimate our progress. At this rate, he said, we shall make thirty leagues in twenty-four hours, and we shall soon come in sight of the opposite shore. I made no answer, but went and sat forward. The northern shore was already beginning to dip under the horizon. The eastern and western strands spread wide as if to bid us farewell. Before our eyes lay far and wide a vast sea. Shadows of great clouds swept heavily over its silver-gray surface. The glistening bluish rays of electric light, here and there reflected by the dancing drops of spray, shot out little sheaves of light from the track we left in our rear. Soon we entirely lost sight of land. No object was left for the eye to judge by and but for the frothy track of the raft I might have thought we were standing still. About twelve immense shoals of seaweeds came in sight. I was aware of the great powers of vegetation that characterize these plants, which grow at a depth of twelve thousand feet, reproduce themselves under a pressure of four hundred atmospheres, and sometimes form barriers strong enough to impede the course of a ship. But never, I think, were such seaweeds as those which we saw floating in immense waving lines upon the sea of Liedenbrock. Our raft skirted the whole length of the fusi, three or four thousand feet long, undulating like vast serpents beyond the reach of sight. I found some amusement in tracing these endless waves, always thinking I should come to the end of them, and for hours my patience was vying with my surprise. What natural force could have produced such plants? and what must have been the appearance of the earth in the first ages of its formation, when, under the action of heat and moisture, the vegetable kingdom alone was developing on its surface. Evening came, and, as on the previous day, I perceived no change in the luminous condition of the air. It was a constant condition, the permanency of which might be relied upon. After supper I laid myself down at the foot of the mast, and fell asleep in the midst of fantastic reveries. Hans, keeping fast by the helm, let the raft run on, which, after all, needed no steering, the wind blowing directly aft. Since our departure from Port Grauben, Professor Liedenbrock had entrusted the log to my care. I was to register every observation, make entries of interesting phenomena, the direction of the wind, the rate of sailing, the way we made, 
in a word, every particular of our singular voyage. I shall therefore reproduce here these daily notes, written, so to speak, as the course of events directed, in order to furnish an exact narrative of our passage. Friday, August 14. Wind steady, northwest. The raft makes rapid way in a direct line. Coast thirty leagues to leeward. Nothing in sight before us. Intensity of light the same. Weather fine. That is to say that the clouds are flying high, are light and bathed in a white atmosphere resembling silver in a state of fusion. Thermometer, eighty-nine degrees Fahrenheit. At noon Hans prepared a hook at the end of a line. He baited it with a small piece of meat and flung it into the sea. For two hours nothing was caught. Are these waters then bare of inhabitants? No, there's a pull at the line. Hans draws it in and brings out a struggling fish. A sturgeon, I cried, a small sturgeon. The professor eyes the creature attentively, and his opinion differs from mine. The head of this fish was flat, but rounded in front, and the interior part of its body was plated with bony angular scales. It had no teeth, its pectoral fins were large, and of tail there was none. The animal belonged to the same order as the sturgeon, but differed from that fish in many essential particulars. After a short examination my uncle pronounced his opinion. "'This fish belongs to an extinct family, of which only fossil traces are found in the Devonian formations.' "'What?' I cried. "'Have we taken alive an inhabitant of the seas of primitive ages?' "'Yes, and you will observe that these fossil fishes have no identity with any living species. To have in one's possession a living specimen is a happy event for a naturalist.' But to what family does it belong? It is of the order of Ganoids, of the family of the Cephalaspidae, and a species of Terictis. But this one displays a peculiarity confined to all fishes that inhabit subterranean waters. It is blind, and not only blind, but actually has no eyes at all. I looked. Nothing could be more certain. But supposing it might be a solitary case, we baited afresh and threw out our line. Surely this ocean is well peopled with fish, for in another couple of hours we took a large quantity of Terichthides, as well as of others belonging to the extinct family of the Dipterites, but of which my uncle could not tell the species. None had organs of sight. This unhoped-for catch recruited our stock of provisions. Thus it is evident that this sea contains none but species known to us in their fossil state in which fishes as well as reptiles are the less perfectly and completely organized the farther back their date of creation. Perhaps we may yet meet with some of those saurians which science has reconstructed out of a bit of bone or cartilage. I took up the telescope and scanned the whole horizon, and found it everywhere a desert sea. We are far away removed from the shores. I gazed upward in the air. Why should not some of the strange birds restored by the immortal Cuvier again flap their sail-broad vans in this dense and heavy atmosphere? There are sufficient fish for their support. I surveyed the whole space that stretches overhead. It is as desert as the shore was. Still my imagination carried me away amongst the wonderful speculations of paleontology. Though awake I fell into a dream. I thought I could see floating on the surface of the waters enormous colonia, 
pre-Adamite tortoises, resembling floating islands. Over the dimly lighted strand there trod the huge mammals of the first ages of the world, the Leptotherium, slender beast, found in the caverns of Brazil, the Mericotherium, ruminating beast, found in the drift of ice-clad Siberia. Farther on, the Pachydermatus lophiodon, crested-toothed, a gigantic taper hides behind the rocks to dispute its prey with the Anoplotherium, unarmed beast, a strange creature which seemed a compound of horse, rhinoceros, camel, and hippopotamus. The colossal mastodon, nipple-toothed, twists and untwists its trunk, and brays and pounds with his huge tusks the fragments of rock that covered the shore. Whilst the megatherium, huge beast, buttressed upon his enormous hinder paws, grubs in the soil, awaking the sonorous echoes of the granite rocks with its tremendous roarings. Higher up, the protopithica, the first monkey that appeared on the globe, is climbing up the steep ascents. Higher yet, the pterodactyl, wing-fingered, darts in irregular zigzags to and fro in the heavy air. In the uppermost regions of the air immense birds, more powerful than the cassowary and larger than the ostrich, spread their vast breadth of wings and strike with their heads the granite vault that bounds the sky. All this fossil world rises to life again in my vivid imagination. I return to the scriptural periods or ages of the world, conventionally called days, long before the appearance of man, when the unfinished world was as yet unfitted for his support. Then my dream backed even farther still into the ages before the creation of living beings. The mammals disappear, then the birds vanish, then the reptiles of the secondary period, and finally the fish, the crustaceans, mollusks, and articulated beings. Then the zoophytes of the transition period also return to nothing. I am the only living thing in the world. All life is concentrated in my beating heart alone. There are no more seasons, climates are no more. The heat of the globe continually increases and neutralizes that of the sun. Vegetation becomes accelerated. I glide like a shade amongst arborescent ferns, treading with unsteady feet the colored marls and the party-colored clays. I lean for support against the trunks of immense conifers. I lie in the shade of Sphenophylla, wedge-leaved, Astrophylla, star-leaved, and lycopods a hundred feet high. Ages seem no more than days. I am passed, against my will in retrograde order, through the long series of terrestrial changes. Plants disappear. Granite rocks soften. Intense heat converts solid bodies into thick fluids. The waters again cover the face of the earth. They boil, they rise in whirling eddies of steam. White and ghastly mists wrap around the shifting forms of the earth, which by imperceptible degrees dissolves into a gaseous mass, glowing fiery red and white, as large and as shining as the sun. And I myself am floating with wild caprice in the midst of this nebulous mass of fourteen hundred thousand times the volume of the earth into which it will one day be condensed, and carried forward amongst the planetary bodies. My body is no longer firm and terrestrial. It is resolved into its constituent atoms, subtilized, volatilized. Sublimed into imponderable vapor, I mingle and am lost in the endless foods of those vast globular volumes of vaporous mists, which roll upon their flaming orbits through infinite space. But is it not a dream? 
whither is it carrying me? My feverish hand has vainly attempted to describe upon paper its strange and wonderful details. I have forgotten everything that surrounds me. The professor, the guide, the raft, are all gone out of my ken. An illusion has laid hold upon me. "'What is the matter?' my uncle breaks in. My staring eyes are fixed vacantly upon him. "'Take care, Axel, or you will fall overboard.' At that moment I felt the sinewy hand of Hans seizing me vigorously, but for him, carried away by my dream, I should have thrown myself into the sea. "'Is he mad?' cried the professor. "'What is it all about?' at last I cried, returning to myself. "'Do you feel ill?' my uncle asked. "'No, but I have had a strange hallucination. It is over now. Is all going on right?' Yes. It is a fair wind and a fine sea. We are sailing rapidly along, and if I am not out in my reckoning we shall soon land." At these words I rose and gazed round upon the horizon, still everywhere bounded by clouds alone. End of chapter 32「Chapter 33 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 33 A Battle of Monsters Saturday, August 15th. The sea unbroken all round. No land in sight. The horizon seems extremely distant. My head is still stupefied with the vivid reality of my dream. My uncle has had no dreams, but he is out of temper. He examines the horizon all round with his glass, and folds his arms with the air of an injured man. I remark that Professor Liedenbrock has a tendency to relapse into an impatient mood, and I make a note of it in my log. All my danger and sufferings were needed to strike a spark of human feeling out of him, but now that I am well his nature has resumed its sway. And yet what cause was there for anger? Is not the voyage prospering as favorably as possible under the circumstances? Is not the raft spinning along with marvelous speed?" "'You seem anxious, my uncle,' I said, seeing him continually with his glass to his eye. "'Anxious? No, not at all.' "'Impatient, then?' "'One might be, with less reason than now. Yet we are going very fast. What does that signify?' I am not complaining that the rate is slow, but that the sea is so wide." I then remembered that the professor, before starting, had estimated the length of this underground sea at thirty leagues. Now we had made three times the distance, yet still the southern coast was not in sight. "'We are not descending as we ought to be,' the professor declares. "'We are losing time, and the fact is, I have not come all this way to take a little sail upon a pond on a raft." He called this sea a pond, and our long voyage taking a little sail. "'But,' I remarked, "'since we have followed the road that Sagnusum has shown us—' "'That is just the question. Have we followed that road? Did Sagnusum meet this sheet of water? Did he cross it? Has not the stream that we followed led us altogether astray?' At any rate, we cannot feel sorry to have come so far. This prospect is magnificent, and—but I don't care for prospects. 
I came with an object, and I mean to attain it. Therefore, don't talk to me about views and prospects." I take this as my answer, and I leave the professor to bite his lips with impatience. At six in the evening, Hans asks for his wages, and his three rix-dollars are counted out to him. Sunday, August 16th. Nothing new. Weather unchanged. The wind freshens. On awaking, my first thought was to observe the intensity of the light. I was possessed with an apprehension lest the electric light should grow dim, or fail altogether. But there seemed no reason to fear. The shadow of the raft was clearly outlined upon the surface of the waves. Truly, this sea is of infinite width. It must be as wide as the Mediterranean or the Atlantic. And why not? My uncle took sounding several times. He tied the heaviest of our pickaxes to a long rope, which he let down two hundred fathoms. No bottom yet, and we had some difficulty in hauling up our plummet. But when the pick was shipped again, Hans pointed out on its surface deep prints as if it had been violently compressed between two hard bodies. I looked at the hunter. "'Dinder,' said he. I could not understand him, and turned to my uncle, who was entirely absorbed in his calculations. I had rather not disturb him while he is quiet. I return to the Icelander. He, by a snapping motion of his jaws, conveys his ideas to me. "'Teeth!' I cried, considering the iron bar with more attention. "'Yes, indeed, those are the marks of teeth imprinted upon the metal. The jaws which they are must be possessed of amazing strength. Is there some monster beneath us belonging to the extinct races, more voracious than the shark, more fearful in vastness than the whale? I could not take my eyes off this indented iron bar. Surely will my last night's dream be realized?' These thoughts agitated me all day, and my imagination scarcely calmed down after several hours' sleep. Monday, August 17. I am trying to recall the peculiar instincts of the monsters of the pre-Adamite world, who, coming next in succession after the mollusks, the crustaceans, and the fishes, preceded the animals of mammalian race upon the earth. The world then belonged to reptiles. Those monsters held the mastery in the seas of the secondary period. They possessed a perfect organization, gigantic proportions, prodigious strength. The saurians of our day, the alligators and the crocodiles, are but feeble reproductions of their forefathers of primitive ages. I shudder as I recall these monsters to my remembrance. No human eye has ever beheld them living. They burdened this earth a thousand ages before man appeared, but their fossil remains, found in the argillaceous limestone called by the English the Lias, have enabled their colossal structure to be perfectly built up again and anatomically ascertained. I saw at the Hamburg Museum the skeleton of one of these creatures thirty feet in length. Am I then fated, I, a denizen of earth, to be placed face to face with these representatives of long-extinct families? No, surely it cannot be. Yet the deep marks of the conical teeth upon the iron pick are certainly those of the crocodile. My eyes are fearfully bent upon the sea. I dread to see one of these monsters darting forth from its submarine caverns. I suppose Professor Liedenbrock was of my opinion, too 
and even shared my fears, for after having examined the pick his eyes traversed the ocean from side to side. What a very bad notion that was of his, I thought to myself, to take soundings just here. He has disturbed some monstrous beast in its remote den, and if we are not attacked on our voyage... I look at our guns and see that they are all right. My uncle notices it and looks on approvingly. Already widely disturbed regions on the surface of the water indicate some commotion below. The danger is approaching. We must be on the lookout. Tuesday, August 18th. Evening came, or rather the time came when sleep weighs down the weary eyelids, for there is no night here, and the ceaseless light wearies the eyes with its persistency just as if we were sailing under an arctic sun. Hans was at the helm. During his watch I slept. Two hours afterwards a terrible shock awoke me. The raft was heaved up on a watery mountain and pitched down again at a distance of twenty fathoms. "'What is the matter?' shouted my uncle. "'Have we struck land?' Hans pointed with his finger at a dark mass six hundred yards away, rising and falling alternately with heavy plunges. I looked and cried, "'It is an enormous porpoise!' "'Yes,' replied my uncle, "'and there is a sea-lizard of vast size.' and farther on a monstrous crocodile. Look at its vast jaws and its rows of teeth. It is diving down. "'There is a whale! A whale!' cried the professor. "'I can see its great fins. See how he is throwing out air and water through his blowers!' And, in fact, two liquid columns were rising to a considerable height above the sea. We stood amazed, thunderstruck, at the presence of such a herd of marine monsters they were of supernatural dimensions. The smallest of them would have crunched our raft, crew and all, at one snap of its huge jaws. Hans wants to tack to get away from this dangerous neighborhood, but he sees on the other hand enemies not less terrible. A tortoise forty feet long, and a serpent of thirty, lifting its fearful head and gleaming eyes above the flood. Flight was out of the question now. The reptiles rose they wheeled around our little raft with a rapidity greater than that of express trains. They described around us gradually narrowing circles. I took up my rifle. But what could a ball do against the scaly armor with which these enormous beasts were clad? We stood dumb with fear. They approach us close. On one side the crocodile, on the other the serpent. The remainder of the sea-monsters have disappeared. I prepare to fire. Hans stops me by a gesture. The two monsters pass within a hundred and fifty yards of the raft and hurl themselves the one upon the other, with a fury which prevents them from seeing us. At three hundred yards from us the battle was fought. We could distinctly observe the two monsters engaged in deadly conflict. But it now seems to me as if the other animals were taking part in the fray—the porpoise, the whale, the lizard, the tortoise. Every moment, I seem to see one or other of them. I point them to the Icelander. He shakes his head negatively. Tva, says he. What two? Does he mean that there are only two animals? He is right, said my uncle, whose glass has never left his eye. Surely you must be mistaken, I cried. No, 
the first of those monsters has a porpoise's snout, a lizard's head, a crocodile's teeth, and hence our mistake. It is the ichthyosaurus, the fish-lizard, the most terrible of the ancient monsters of the deep. And the other? The other is a plesiosaurus, almost lizard, a serpent, armored with a carapace and the paddles of a turtle. He is the dreadful enemy of the other. Hans has spoken truly. Two monsters only were creating all this commotion. And before my eyes are two reptiles of the primitive world. I can distinguish the eye of the ichthyosaurus glowing like a red-hot coal, and as large as a man's head. Nature has endowed it with an optical apparatus of extreme power, and capable of resisting the pressure of the great volume of water in the depths it inhabits. It has been appropriately called the Saurian whale, for it has both the swiftness and the rapid movements of this monster of our own day. This one is not less than a hundred feet long, and I can judge of its size when it sweeps over the waters the vertical coils of its tail. Its jaw is enormous, and according to naturalists it is armed with no less than one hundred and eighty-two teeth. The plesiosaurus, a serpent with a cylindrical body and a short tail, has four flappers or paddles to act like oars. Its body is entirely covered with a thick armor of scales, and its neck, as flexible as a swan's, rises thirty feet above the waves. Those huge creatures attacked each other with the greatest animosity. They heaved around them liquid mountains, which rolled even to our raft and rocked it perilously. Twenty times we were near capsizing. Hissings of prodigious force are heard. The two beasts are fast locked together. I cannot distinguish one from the other. The probable range of the conqueror inspires us with intense fear. One hour, two hours pass away. The struggle continues with unabated ferocity. The combatants alternately approach and recede from our raft. We remain motionless, ready to fire. Suddenly the ichthyosaurus and the plesiosaurus disappear below, leaving a whirlpool eddying in the water. Several minutes pass by while the fight goes on under water. All at once an enormous head is darted up, the head of the plesiosaurus. The monster is wounded to death. I no longer see his scaly armor. Only his long neck shoots up, drops again, coils and uncoils, droops, lashes the water like a gigantic whip, and writhes like a worm that you tread on. The water is splashed for a long way around. The spray almost blinds us. But soon the reptile's agony draws to an end. Its movements become fainter, its contortions cease to be so violent, and the long serpentine form lies a lifeless log on the laboring deep. As for the ichthyosaurus, has he returned to his submarine cavern, or will he reappear on the surface of the sea? End of chapter 33「Chapter thirty four of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty four The Great Geyser. Wednesday, August nineteenth. Fortunately, the wind blows violently and has enabled us to flee from the scene of the late terrible struggle. Hans keeps his post at the helm. My uncle, 
whom the absorbing incidents of the combat had drawn away from his contemplations, began again to look impatiently around him. The voyage resumes its uniform tenor, which I don't care to break with a repetition of such events as yesterday's. Thursday, August 20. Wind north-northeast, unsteady and fitful. Temperature high. Rate three and a half leagues an hour. About noon a distant noise is heard. I note the fact without being able to explain it. It is a continuous roar. In the distance, said the professor, there is a rock or islet against which the sea is breaking. Hans climbs up the mast but sees no breakers. The ocean is smooth and unbroken to its farthest limit. Three hours pass away. The roaring seemed to proceed from a very distant waterfall. I remark upon this to my uncle, who replies doubtfully, Yes, I am convinced that I am right. Are we then speeding forward to some cataract which shall cast us down an abyss? This method of getting on may please the professor, because it is vertical, but for my part I preferred the more ordinary modes of horizontal progression. At any rate, some leagues to the windward there must be some noisy phenomenon, for now the roarings are heard with increasing loudness. Do they proceed from the sky or the ocean? I look up to the atmospheric vapors and try to fathom their depths. The sky is calm and motionless. The clouds have reached the utmost limit of the lofty vault, and there lie still bathed in the bright glare of the electric light. It is not there that we must seek for the cause of this phenomenon. Then I examine the horizon, which is unbroken and clear of all mist. There is no change in its aspect. But if this noise arises from a fall, a cataract, if all this ocean flows away headlong into a lower basin yet, if that deafening roar is produced by a mass of falling water, the current must needs accelerate and its increasing speed will give me the measure of the peril that threatens us. I consult the current. There is none. I throw an empty bottle into the sea. It lies still. About four, Hans rises, lays hold of the mast, climbs to its top. Thence his eye sweeps a large area of sea, and it is fixed upon a point. His countenance exhibits no surprise, but his eye is immovably steady. He sees something, says my uncle. I believe he does. Hans comes down, then stretches his arm to the south, saying, There, ne'er. Down there, repeated my uncle. Then, seizing his glass, he gazes attentively for a minute, which seems to me an age. Yes, yes, he cried. I see a vast inverted cone rising from the surface. Is it another sea beast? Perhaps it is. Then let us steer farther westward, for we know something of the danger of coming across monsters of that sort. Let us go straight on, replied my uncle. I appealed to Hans. He maintained his course inflexibly. Yet, if at our present distance from the animal, a distance of twelve leagues at least, the column of water driven through its blowers may be distinctly seen, it must needs be of vast size. The commonest prudence would counsel immediate flight. But we did not come so far to be prudent. Imprudently, therefore, we pursue our way.
The nearer we approach, the higher mounts the jet of water. What monster could possibly fill itself with such a quantity of water and spurt it up so continuously? At eight in the evening we are not two leagues distant from it. Its body, dusky, enormous, hillocky, lies spread upon the sea like an islet. Is it illusion or fear? Its length seems to me a couple of thousand yards. What can be this cetacean, which neither Cuvier nor Blumenbach knew anything about? It lies motionless, as if asleep. The sea seems unable to move it in the least. It is the waves that undulate upon its sides. The column of water thrown up to a height of five hundred feet falls in rain with a deafening uproar. And here are we scudding like lunatics before the wind to get near to a monster that a hundred whales a day would not satisfy. Terror ceases upon me. I refuse to go further. I will cut the halyards if necessary. I am in open mutiny against the professor, who vouchsafes no answer. Suddenly Hans rises, and pointing with his finger at the menacing object, he says, Holm! An island! cries my uncle. That's not an island! I cried skeptically. It's nothing else! shouted the professor, with a loud laugh. But that column of water? Geyser! said Hans. No doubt it is a geyser, like those in Iceland. At first, I protest against being so widely mistaken as to have taken an island for a marine monster. But the evidence is against me, and I have to confess my error. It is nothing worse than a natural phenomenon. As we approach nearer, the dimensions of the liquid column become magnificent. The islet resembles, with the most deceiving likeness, an enormous cetacean, whose head dominates the waves at a height of twenty yards. The geyser, a word meaning fury, rises majestically from its extremity. Deep and heavy explosions are heard from time to time, when the enormous jet, possessed with more furious violence, shakes its plumy crest, and springs with a bound till it reaches the lowest stratum of the clouds. It stands alone. No steam vents, no hot springs surround it, and all the volcanic power of the region is concentrated here. Sparks of electric fire mingle with the dazzling sheaf of lighted fluid, every drop of which refracts the prismatic colors. Let us land, said the professor, but we must carefully avoid this waterspout, which would sink our raft in a moment. Hans, steering with his usual skill, brought us to the other extremity of the islet. I leaped up on the rock. My uncle lightly followed, while our hunter remained at his post, like a man too wise ever to be astonished. We walked upon granite mingled with siliceous tufa. The soil shivers and shakes under our feet, like the sides of an overheated boiler filled with steam struggling to get loose. We come inside of a small central basin, out of which the geyser springs. I plunge a register thermometer into the boiling water. It marks an intense heat of 325 degrees, which is far above the boiling point. Therefore, this water issues from an ardent furnace, which is not at all in harmony with Professor Liedenbrock's theories. I cannot help making the remark. Well, he replied, how does that make against my doctrine? Oh, nothing at all. I said, seeing that I was going in opposition to immovable obstinacy. 
Still, I am constrained to confess that hitherto we have been wonderfully favoured, and that for some reason, unknown to myself, we have accomplished our journey under singularly favourable conditions of temperature. But it seems manifest to me that some day we shall reach a region where the central heat attains its highest limits, and goes beyond a point that can be registered by our thermometers. That is what we shall see. So says the professor, who, having named this volcanic islet after his nephew, gives the signal to embark again. For some minutes I am still contemplating the geyser. I notice that it throws up its column of water with variable force, sometimes sending it to a great height, then again to a lower, which I attribute to the variable pressure of the steam accumulated in its reservoir. At last we leave the island, rounding away past the low rocks on its southern shore. Hans has taken advantage of the hall to refit his rudder. But before going any farther I make a few observations, to calculate the distance we have gone over and note them in my journal. We have crossed two hundred and seventy leagues of sea since leaving Port Grauben, and we are six hundred and twenty leagues from Iceland under England. End of chapter 34Chapter 35 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 35 An Electric Storm Friday, August 21. On the morrow the magnificent geyser has disappeared. The wind has risen and has rapidly carried us away from Axel Island the roarings become lost in the distance. The weather, if we may use that term, will change before long. The atmosphere is charged with vapours, pervaded with the electricity generated by the evaporation of saline waters. The clouds are sinking lower, and assume an olive hue. The electric light can scarcely penetrate through the dense curtain which has dropped over the theatre on which the battle of the elements is about to be waged. I feel peculiar sensations, like many creatures on earth, at the approach of violent atmospheric changes. The heavily voluted cumulus clouds lower gloomily and threateningly. They wear that implacable look which I have sometimes noticed at the outbreak of a great storm. The air is heavy, the sea is calm. In the distance the clouds resemble great bales of cotton, piled up in picturesque disorder. By degrees they dilate and gain in huge size what they lose in number. Such is their ponderous weight that they cannot rise from the horizon. But obeying an impulse from higher currents, their dense consistency slowly yields. The gloom upon them deepens, and they soon present to our view a ponderous mass of almost level surface. From time to time a fleecy tuft of mist, with yet some gleaming light left upon it, drops down upon the dense floor of grey, and loses itself in the opaque and impenetrable mass. The atmosphere is evidently charged and surcharged with electricity. My whole body is saturated. My hair bristles, just as when you stand upon an insulated stool under the action of an electrical machine. It seems to me as if my companions, the moment they touched me, would receive a severe shock like that from an electric eel. 
At ten in the morning the symptoms of storm become aggravated. The wind never lulls but to acquire increased strength. The vast bank of heavy clouds is a huge reservoir of fearful windy gusts and rushing storms. I am loath to believe these atmospheric menaces, and yet I cannot help muttering, here's some very bad weather coming on." The professor made no answer. His temper is awful, to judge from the working of his features, as he sees this vast length of ocean unrolling before him to an indefinite extent. He can only spare time to shrug his shoulders viciously. "'There's a heavy storm coming on,' I cried, pointing towards the horizon. Those clouds seem as if they were going to crush the sea." A deep silence falls on all around. The lately roaring winds are hushed into a dead calm. Nature seems to breathe no more, and to be sinking into the stillness of death. On the mast already I see the light play of a lambent St. Elmo's fire. The outstretched sail catches not a breath of wind, and hangs like a sheet of lead. The rudder stands motionless in a sluggish, waveless sea. But if we have now ceased to advance, why do we yet leave that sail loose, which at the first shock of the tempest may capsize us in a moment? "'Let us reef the sail and cut the mast down,' I cried. "'That will be safest.' "'No, no, never!' shouted my impetuous uncle. "'Never! Let the wind catch us if it will. What I want is to get the least glimpse of a rock or shore, even if a raft should be smashed into shivers.' The words were hardly out of his mouth when a sudden change took place in the southern sky. The piled-up vapors condensed into water, and the air, put into violent action to supply the vacuum left by the condensation of the mists, rouses itself into a whirlwind. It rushes on from the farthest recesses of the vast cavern. The darkness deepens. Scarcely can I jot down a few hurried notes. The helm makes a bound. My uncle falls full length. I creep close to him. He has laid a firm hold upon a rope, and appears to watch with grim satisfaction this awful display of elemental strife. Hans stirs not. His long hair, blown by the pelting storm, and laid flat across his immovable countenance, makes him a strange figure, for the end of each lock of loose-flowing hair is tipped with little luminous radiations. This frightful mask of electric sparks suggests to me, even in this dizzy excitement, a comparison with pre-Adamite man, the contemporary of the Ichthyosaurus and the Megatherium. The mast yet holds firm. The sail stretches tight like a bubble ready to burst. The raft flies at a rate that I cannot reckon, but not so fast as the foaming clouds of spray which it dashes from side to side in its headlong speed. "'The sail! The sail!' I cry, motioning to lower it. "'No!' replies my uncle. "'Nay!' repeats Hans, leisurely shaking his head. But now the rain forms a rushing cataract in front of that horizon toward which we are running with such maddening speed. But before it has reached us the rain-cloud parts asunder, the sea boils, and the electric fires are brought into violent action by a mighty chemical power that descends from the higher regions. The most vivid flashes of lightning are mingled with the violent crash of a continuous thunder. Ceaseless fiery arrows dart in and out amongst the flying thunderclouds. The vaporous mass soon glows with incandescent heat. 
hailstones rattle fiercely down, and as they dash upon our iron tools they too emit gleams and flashes of lurid light. The heavy waves resemble fiery volcanic hills, each belching forth its own interior flames, and every crest is plumed with dancing fire. My eyes failed under the dazzling light, my ears are stunned with the incessant crash of thunder. I must be bound to the mast, which bows like a reed before the mighty strength of the storm. Here my notes become vague and indistinct. I have only been able to find a few which I seem to have jotted down almost unconsciously, but their very brevity and their obscurity reveal the intensity of the excitement which dominated me and describe the actual position even better than my memory could do. Sunday, the 23rd. Where are we? Driven forward with a swiftness that cannot be measured. The night was fearful. No abatement of the storm. The din and uproar were incessant. Our ears are bleeding. To exchange a word is impossible. The lightning flashes with intense brilliancy and never seems to cease for a moment. Zigzag streams of bluish-white fire dash down upon the sea and rebound, and then take an upward flight till they strike the granite vault that overarches our heads. Suppose that solid roof should crumble down upon our heads. Other flashes with incessant play cross their vivid fires, while others again roll themselves into balls of living fire which explode like bombshells, but the music of which scarcely adds to the din of the battle-strife that almost deprives us of our senses of hearing and sight. The limit of intense loudness has been passed within which the human ear can distinguish one sound from another. If all the powder magazines in the world were to explode at once, we should hear no more than we do now. From under the surface of the clouds there are continual emissions of lurid light. Electric matter is in continual evolution from their component molecules, the gaseous elements of the air need to be slaked with moisture. For innumerable columns of water rush upwards into the air and fall back again in white foam. Whither are we flying? My uncle lies full length across the raft. The heat increases. I refer to the thermometer. It indicates the figure is obliterated. Monday, August 24. Will there be an end to it? Is the atmospheric condition, having once reached this density, to become final? We are prostrated and worn out with fatigue. But Hans is as usual. The raft bears on still to the southeast. We have made two hundred leagues since we left Axel Island. At noon the violence of the storm redoubles. We are obliged to secure as fast as possible every article that belongs to our cargo. Each of us is lashed to some part of the raft. The waves rise above our heads. For three days we have never been able to make each other hear a word. Our mouths open, our lips move, but not a word can be heard. We cannot even make ourselves heard by approaching our mouth close to the ear. My uncle has drawn nearer to me. He has uttered a few words. They seem to be, we are lost, but I am not sure. At last I write down the words. Let us lower the sail. He nods his consent. Scarcely has he lifted his head again before a ball of fire has bounded over the waves and lighted on board our raft. Mast and sail flew up in an instant together, and I saw them carried up to prodigious height, 
resembling in appearance a pterodactyl, one of those strong birds of the infant world. We lay there, our blood running cold with unspeakable terror. The fireball, half of it white, half azure blue, and the size of a ten-inch shell, moved slowly about the raft, but revolving on its own axis with astonishing velocity, as if whipped round by the force of the whirlwind. Here it comes, there it glides, now it is up the ragged stump of the mast, thence it lightly leaps on the provision bag, descends with a light bound, and just skims the powder magazine. Horrible! We shall be blown up! But no, the dazzling disk of mysterious light nimbly leaps aside. It approaches Hans, who fixes his blue eye upon it steadily. It threatens the head of my uncle, who falls upon his knees with his head down to avoid it. And now my turn comes. Pale and trembling under the blinding splendor and the melting heat, it drops at my feet, spinning silently round upon the deck. I try to move my foot away, but cannot. A suffocating smell of nitrogen fills the air. It enters the throat, it fills the lungs. We suffer stifling pains. Why am I unable to move my foot? Is it riveted to the planks? Alas! The fall upon our fated raft of this electric globe has magnetized every iron article on board. The instruments, the tools, our guns, are clashing and clanking violently in their collisions with each other. The nails of my boot cling tenaciously to a plate of iron led into the timbers, and I cannot draw my foot away from the spot. At last, by a violent effort, I release myself at the instant when the ball in its gyrations was about to seize upon it and carry me off my feet. Ah, what a flood of intense and dazzling light! The globe has burst, and we are deluged with tongues of fire. Then all the light disappears. I could just see my uncle at full length on the raft, and Hans still at his helm and spitting fire under the action of the electricity which has saturated him. But where are we going to? Where? Tuesday, August 25th. I recover from a long swoon. The storm continues to roar and rage. The lightnings dash hither and thither, like broods of fiery serpents filling all the air. Are we still under the sea? Yes, we are borne at incalculable speed. We have been carried under England, under the Channel, under France, perhaps under the whole of Europe. A fresh noise is heard. Surely it is the sea breaking upon the rocks. But then... End of chapter 35、Chapter、Thirty Six Calm Philosophic Discussions Here I end what I may call my log, happily saved from the wreck, and I resumed my narrative as before. What happened when the raft was dashed upon the rocks is more than I can tell. I felt myself hurled into the waves, and if I escaped from death, and if my body was not torn over the sharp edges of the rocks, it was because the powerful arm of Hans came to my rescue. The brave Icelander carried me out of the reach of the waves, over a burning sand where I found myself by the side of my uncle. 
Then he returned to the rocks, against which the furious waves were beating, to save what he could. I was unable to speak. I was shattered with fatigue and excitement. I wanted a whole hour to recover even a little. But a deluge of rain was still falling, though with that violence which generally denotes the near cessation of a storm. A few overhanging rocks afforded us some shelter from the storm. Hans prepared some food, which I could not touch, and each of us, exhausted with three sleepless nights, fell into a broken and painful sleep. The next day the weather was splendid. The sky and the sea had sunk into sudden repose. Every trace of the awful storm had disappeared. The exhilarating voice of the professor fell upon my ears as I awoke. He was ominously cheerful. "'Well, my boy,' he cried, "'have you slept well?' Would not anyone have thought that we were still in our cheerful little house on the Kunigstrasse, and that I was only just coming down to breakfast, and that I was to be married to Grauben that day? Alas, if the tempest had but sent the raft a little more east, we should have passed under Germany, under my beloved town of Hamburg, under the very street where dwelt all that I loved most in the world. Then only forty leagues would have separated us. But they were forty leagues perpendicular of solid granite wall, and in reality we were a thousand leagues asunder. All these painful reflections rapidly crossed my mind before I could answer my uncle's question. "'Well, now,' he repeated, "'won't you tell me how you have slept?' "'Oh, very well,' I said. "'I am only a little knocked up, but I shall soon be better.' "'Oh,' says my uncle, "'that's nothing to signify. You are only a little bit tired. But you, uncle, you seem in very good spirits this morning. Delighted, my boy, delighted! We have got there!" To our journey's end? No, but we have got to the end of that endless sea. Now we shall go by land, and really begin to go down, down, down! But, my dear uncle, do let me ask you one question. Of course, Axel. How about returning? Returning? Why, you are talking about the return before the arrival. No, I only want to know how that is to be managed. In the simplest way possible. When we have reached the centre of the globe, either we shall find some new way to get back, or we shall come back like decent folks the way we came. I feel pleased at the thought that it is sure not to be shut against us. But then we shall have to refit the raft. Of course. Then, as to provisions, have we enough to last? Yes, to be sure we have. Hans is a clever fellow, and I am sure he must have saved a large part of our cargo. But still, let us go and make sure. We left this grotto which lay open to every wind. At the same time I cherished a trembling hope, which was a fear as well. It seemed to me impossible that the terrible wreck of the raft should not have destroyed everything on board. On my arrival on the shore I found Hans surrounded by an assemblage of articles all arranged in good order. My uncle shook hands with him with a lively gratitude. This man, with almost superhuman devotion, had been at work all the while that we were asleep, and had saved the most precious of the articles at the risk of his life. Not that we had suffered no losses. For instance, our firearms but we might do without them. 
Our stock of powder had remained uninjured after having risked blowing up during the storm. Well, cried the professor, as we have no guns, we cannot hunt, that's all. Yes, but how about the instruments? Here's the aneroid, the most useful of all, and for which I would have given all the others. By means of it I can calculate the depth and know when we have reached the center. Without it we might very likely go beyond and come out at the antipodes. Such high spirits as these were rather too strong. But where is the compass? I asked. Here it is upon this rock, in perfect condition, as well as the thermometers and the chronometer. The hunter is a splendid fellow. There was no denying it. We had all our instruments. As for tools and appliances, there they all lay on the ground, ladders, ropes, picks, spades, etc. Still, there was the question of provisions to be settled, and I asked, How are we off for provisions? The boxes containing these were in a line upon the shore, in a perfect state of preservation. For the most part, the sea had spared them, and what with biscuits, salt meat, spirits, and salt fish, we might reckon on four months' supply. Four months!' cried the professor. "'We have time to go and to return. And with what is left, I will give a grand dinner to my friends at the Johanneum.' I ought by this time to have been quite accustomed to my uncle's ways, yet there was always something fresh about him to astonish me. "'Now,' said he, we will replenish our supply of water with the rain which the storm has left in all these granite basins. Therefore we shall have no reason to fear anything from thirst. As for the raft, I would recommend Hans to do his best to repair it, although I don't expect it will be of any further use to us." "'How so?' I cried. "'An idea of my own, my lad. I don't think we shall come out by the way we went in.' I stared at the professor with a good deal of mistrust. I asked, was he not touched in the brain? And yet there was method in his madness. "'And now let us go to breakfast,' said he. I followed him to a headland, after he had given his instructions to the hunter. There preserved meat, biscuit, and tea made us an excellent meal, one of the best I ever remember. Hunger, the fresh air, the calm quiet weather, after the commotions we had gone through, all contributed to give me a good appetite. Whilst breakfasting I took the opportunity to put to my uncle the question where we were now. "'That seems to me,' I said, "'rather difficult to make out.' "'Yes, it is difficult,' he said, "'to calculate exactly. Perhaps even impossible, since during these three stormy days I have been unable to keep any account of the rate or direction of the raft.' but still we may get an approximation." The last observation, I remarked, was made on the island, when the geyser was. You mean Axel Island. Don't decline the honour of having given your name to the first island ever discovered in the central parts of the globe. Well, said I, let it be Axel Island. Then we had cleared two hundred and seventy leagues of sea, and we were six hundred leagues from Iceland. Very well answered my uncle. Let us start from that point and count four days' storm, during which our rate cannot have been less than eighty leagues in the twenty-four hours. That is right, and this would make three hundred leagues more. Yes, 
and the Liedenbrock Sea would be six hundred leagues from shore to shore. Surely, Axel, it may vie in size with the Mediterranean itself." "'Especially,' I replied, "'if it happens that we have only crossed it in its narrowest part. And it is a curious circumstance,' I added, "'that if my computations are right, and we are nine hundred leagues from Reykjavik, we have now the Mediterranean above our head.' "'That is a good long way, my friend. But whether we are under Turkey or the Atlantic depends very much upon the question in what direction we have been moving. Perhaps we have deviated.' "'No, I think not. Our course has been the same all along, and I believe this shore is southeast of Port Grauben.' "'Well,' replied my uncle, "'we may easily ascertain this by consulting the compass. Let us go and see what it says.' The professor moved towards the rock upon which Hans had laid down the instruments. He was gay and full of spirits. He rubbed his hands, he studied his attitudes. I followed him, curious to know if I was right in my estimate. As soon as we had arrived at the rock, my uncle took the compass, laid it horizontally, and questioned the needle, which, after a few oscillations, presently assumed a fixed position. My uncle looked and looked and looked again. He rubbed his eyes, and then turned to me thunderstruck with some unexpected discovery. "'What is the matter?' I asked. He motioned to me to look. An exclamation of astonishment burst from me. The north pole of the needle was turned to what we supposed to be the south. It pointed to the shore instead of to the open sea. I shook the box, examined it again. It was in perfect condition. In whatever position I placed the box, the needle pertinaciously returned to this unexpected quarter. Therefore, there seemed no reason to doubt that during the storm there had been a sudden change of wind unperceived by us, which had brought our raft back to the shore which we thought we had left so long a distance behind us. End of chapter 36「Chapter 37 of A Journey into the Interior of the Earth by Jules Verne, translated by Frederick Mallison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 37 The Liedenbrock Museum of Geology How shall I describe the strange series of passions which in succession shook the breast of Professor Liedenbrock? First stupefaction, then incredulity, lastly a downright burst of rage. Never had I seen the man so put out of countenance and so disturbed. The fatigues of our passage across, the dangers met, had all to be begun over again. We had gone backwards instead of forwards. But my uncle rapidly recovered himself. Aha! Will fate play tricks upon me? Will the elements lay plots against me? Shall fire, air, and water make a combined attack against me? Well, they shall know what a determined man can do. I will not yield. I will not stir a single foot backwards, and it will be seen whether man or nature is to have the upper hand." Erect upon the rock, angry and threatening, Otto Liedenbrock was a rather grotesque fierce parody upon the fierce Achilles defying the lightning. But I thought it my duty to interpose and attempt to lay some restraint upon this unmeasured fanaticism. "'Just listen to me,' I said firmly. "'Ambition must have a limit somewhere. 
we cannot perform impossibilities. We are not at all fit for another sea-voyage. Who would dream of undertaking a voyage of five hundred leagues upon a heap of rotten planks, with a blanket in rags for a sail, a stick for a mast, and fierce winds in our teeth? We cannot steer, we shall be buffeted by the tempests, and we shall be fools and madmen to attempt to cross a second time." I was able to develop this series of unanswerable reasons for ten minutes without interruption. Not that the professor was paying any respectful attention to his nephew's arguments, but because he was deaf to all my eloquence. "'To the raft!' he shouted. Such was his only reply. It was no use for me to entreat, supplicate, get angry, or do anything else in the way of opposition. It would only have been opposing a will harder than the granite rock. Hans was finishing the repairs of the raft. One would have thought that this strange being was guessing at my uncle's intentions. With a few more pieces of certibrand he had refitted our vessel. A sail already hung from the new mast, and the wind was playing in its waving folds. The professor said a few words to the guide, and immediately he put everything on board and arranged every necessary for our departure. The air was clear and the northwest wind blew steadily. What could I do? Could I stand against the two? It was impossible. If Hans had but taken my side! But no, it was not to be. The Icelander seemed to have renounced all will of his own, and made a vow to forget and deny himself. I could get nothing out of a servant so feudalized, as it were, to his master. My only course was to proceed. I was therefore going with as much resignation as I could find to resume my accustomed place on the raft, when my uncle laid his hand upon my shoulder. "'We shall not sail until to-morrow,' he said. I made a movement intended to express resignation. "'I must neglect nothing,' he said, "'and since my fate has driven me on this part of the coast, I will not leave it until I have examined it.' To understand what followed, it must be borne in mind that, through circumstances hereafter to be explained, we were not really where the professor supposed we were. In fact, we were not upon the north shore of the sea. "'Now let us start upon fresh discoveries,' I said. And leaving Hans to his work, we started off together. The space between the water and the foot of the cliffs was considerable. It took half an hour to bring us to the wall of rock. We trampled under our feet numberless shells of all the forms and sizes which existed in the earliest ages of the world. I also saw immense carapaces more than fifteen feet in diameter. They had been the coverings of those gigantic glyptodons or armadillos of the Pliocene period, of which the modern tortoise is but a miniature representative. The soil was besides this scattered with stony fragments, boulders rounded by water action, and ridged up in successive lines. I was therefore led to the conclusion that at one time the sea must have covered the ground on which we were treading. On the loose and scattered rocks, now out of reach of the highest tides, the waves had left manifest traces of their power to wear their way in the hardest stone. This might up to a certain point explain the existence of an ocean forty leagues beneath the surface of the globe. But in my opinion, this liquid mass would be lost by degrees farther and farther within the interior of the earth, and it certainly had its origin in the waters of the ocean overhead, which had made their way hither through some fissure. 
yet it must be believed that that fissure is now closed, and that all this cavern or immense reservoir was filled in a very short time. Perhaps even this water, subjected to the fierce action of central heat, had partly been resolved into vapor. This would explain the existence of those clouds suspended over our heads, and the development of that electricity which raised such tempests within the bowels of the earth. This theory of the phenomena we had witnessed seemed satisfactory to me, for however great and stupendous the phenomena of nature, fixed physical laws will or may always explain them. We were therefore walking upon sedimentary soil, the deposits of the waters of former ages. The professor was carefully examining every little fissure in the rocks. Wherever he saw a hole he always wanted to know the depth of it. To him this was important. We had traversed the shores of the Liedenbrock Sea for a mile when we observed a sudden change in the appearance of the soil. It seemed upset, contorted, and convulsed by a violent upheaval of the lower strata. In many places depressions or elevations gave witness to some tremendous power affecting the dislocation of the strata. We moved with difficulty across these granite fissures and chasms, mingled with silex, crystals of quartz, and alluvial deposits when a field, nay, more than a field, a vast plain of bleached bones lay spread before us. It seemed like an immense cemetery, where the remains of twenty ages mingled their dust together. Huge mounds of bony fragments rose stage after stage in the distance. They undulated away to the limits of the horizon, and melted in the distance in a faint haze. There, within three miles, were accumulated the materials for a complete history of the animal life of ages, a history scarcely outlined in the two recent strata of the inhabited world. But an impatient curiosity impelled our steps. Crackling and rattling, our feet were trampling on the remains of prehistoric animals and interesting fossils, the possession of which is a matter of rivalry and contention between the museums of great cities. A thousand Cuviers could never have reconstructed the organic remains deposited in this magnificent and unparalleled collection. I stood amazed. My uncle had uplifted his long arms to the vault which was our sky. His mouth gaping wide, his eyes flashing behind his shining spectacles, his head balancing with an up-and-down motion, his whole attitude denoted unlimited astonishment. Here he stood facing an immense collection of scattered leptotheria, merikotheria, lophiodia, anoplotheria, megatheria, mastodons, protopithecae, pterodactyls, and all sorts of extinct monsters here assembled together for his special satisfaction. Fancy an enthusiastic bibliomaniac suddenly brought into the midst of the famous Alexandrian library burnt by Omar and restored by a miracle from its ashes. Just such a crazed enthusiast was my uncle, Professor Liedenbrock. But more was to come, when, with a rush through clouds of bone-dust, he laid his hand upon a bear's skull, and cried, with a voice trembling with excitement, "'Axel! Axel! A human head!' "'A human skull?' I cried, no less astonished. "'Yes, nephew! Aha! Monsieur Milnedwards! Ah, Monsieur de Quatrefage! How I wish you were standing here at the side of Otto Liedenbrock! End of chapter 37
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.